What's up, squad? Happy New Year. Welcome to the ADAPT session, where we have intrinsic combos on mindset, exercise, and life's ever-changing experiences with your hosts, Joe and... Mondo. Oh, shit. It's season two. Season Welcome two, baby. Welcome to season two, y'all. I, I don't know how I got that energy. I was pretty sleepy before we started. But you know what? <laughs> I'm actually really excited because we got one of my buddies over here, Dr. Nikki Abbott. I'm sorry. I, I've always called it. I've always called you Doc. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Season two kickoff was of a dab session. How crazy is it that we're kicking out the second season, you guys? How exciting. I'm excited. It's crazy. 2021, about to be our year, right, everybody? That's right. Switching it up. Yeah, 2020 vision is outdated, son. <laughs> Let's get started, you guys. I mean, we're give a background on Nikki. So you guys, if you guys are watching this video, you guys are going to notice that uh, we're wearing the same sweater. I, I, I see you, Nikki. <laughs> Joe's wearing it too in spirit. Exactly. Yeah. SS State, she graduated a year before me. She is, um, she's the only person I know that could pass biomechanics and exercise physiology and a whole bunch of hard ass kinesiology classes at the same time oh thank you <laughs> we'll give some stories later on about um a lab instructor that she pissed off <laughs> but today we brought her on because she is starting to become a physical therapist and one of the things that i started calling you towards the end of that semester with that we took together was i actually started calling you doc that's true and that was two years ago three years ago it's been so so it's 2021 now. I graduated 2018. So yeah, going on three years. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> wow. Time flies. Time flies. Right? Time flies when you don't sleep. <laughs> the days are long, but the years are short. Hey, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Especially, especially when you're taking some of those classes that we took. Mm-hmm. Those are Really long classes. I felt like I was there with you guys because every time I seen Armando, he was telling me about it. So I was, I went there too. Exactly. Yeah, and not to mention, I brought him in a couple of times uh, on campus, and sometimes Joe would ask, "He's like, dude, you look like you haven't slept in the last three days." Well, that's because I haven't slept in the last three days. Finals. Let's go work out. <laughs> yeah, you guys do have a really nice um, uh, gym there. It's really nice. The sad part is it opened my last semester there, so uh, I didn't really get to use it. <laughs> it wasn't there. It wasn't there when you were going to school there. That sucks. No, it was being built, but yeah. So I did get like one semester's use out of it, but it was super nice. Well, see, I feel like I'm a, I'm like a full time SF Gator myself because I got to use the gym and you didn't. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you got a better experience than I did, and I got to pay tuition. Oh, I, I, and you know what the crazy thing is, Nikki? I, I took one of the times I, I took Joe over to uh, to campus. He starts, so there's this um, pull-up machine that gives you a di assisted pull-ups, assisted uh, dips. Joe didn't use the assist the the, the assisting right, and he's doing these seated uh, pull-ups, and he's just pulling himself up with ease. And people are watching him. Like there's a crowd starting to crowd around him. He's not paying attention. He's just focusing on his reps. 
and he's doing it like it's nothing. And everybody's just like. So Armando says, I didn't see that, but. <laughs> because you were focused on yourself. Right. In tune. Joe is, Joe is a freak athlete, you guys. That's awesome. I'm all right. Yeah, to be honest, I've never been able to do pull-ups, so <laughs> you're better than me. Ah, <laughs> uh, Joe's Joe's different. <laughs> Appreciate that, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. But, We're here for neuroplasticity, my friends. Yeah, let's let's do it. So, who better to have than my friend Nikki here, who is on her way to becoming a physical therapist? So, if you guys get injured, she can put you guys back together. Or if you guys work with me and Joe. You can work with her and put you back together so you guys can come back to us. <laughs> exactly. Teamwork. There it is. Yes. Teamwork makes the dream work. There we go. So let's get started with neuroplasticity. Nikki, can yeah. you give us an overview of what neuroplasticity is? Sure. So I have a definition I put together for you guys. And so neuroplasticity can be defined as strong and frequent synaptic activation that leads to structural changes of those synapses, creating stronger or new pathways. It can also prune or get rid of old synaptic pathways that aren't frequently activated, which therefore means they aren't needed. Mm. So basically neuroplasticity is just the way our brains adapt when we learn things. I like that word. <laughs> I like that. The way our brain is when we learn things. Can it can it also um, can that also directly go with let's say not just learning something new but going through struggles or challenges or adversity in our life? Um, I'm not sure if that would so much change the same structural pathways, but psychologically, mm -hmm. I feel like it would have the same effects. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain to me what and explain to our audience what the differences would be between? Sure. Them? So really with neuroplasticity, it's the neurons in your brain that are changing the way they grow, which neurons they communicate with, and therefore making actual changes in the anatomy of your brain. Whereas going through something like an adverse event would more, in my opinion, I'm not an expert, but I would more say that's um, like a psychological effect and it makes you stronger mentally, but maybe not so much changing the actual anatomy of your brain. Mm, okay. Yeah. But again, I haven't read research on it, so I could be wrong. That's just based off my own experience. For sure. For sure. I think, I think uh, that's kind of cool because that'll get us into this, this next question that, we, that me and Armando had going on for you. Um, which uh, is age creates less pathways as we get older. Is that true or false? And why is that? Um, so on like a basic level, yeah, I'd say that's uh, accurate. Um, younger brains are more plastic, which just means they're more moldable and impressionable, just like younger humans are. Mm -hmm. um, so as we get older, it gets harder to create new synaptic pathways. So um, as we get older, it gets harder to learn new motor tasks or whatever it is that we're doing. Um, but we can uh, combat that by applying some of the principles of neuroplasticity. Um, for example, in like animal studies with monkeys, um, they found that by 
having high repetition. So they would do like 600 repetitions, which is a lot. You can't really replicate that in human trials, but we can do the best we can. Um, but they found that repetition has a really profound impact on learning new skills. So just implying those type of things can combat the aging process. Okay. It's kind of funny that you say that too, because um, I don't know if you took this same class. We did a um, motor development and we, we watched this video of this guy who created this strange bike. So if you turn the bike, for example, if you want it, so usually when you have a regular bike, if you turn the bike towards the right side, it goes right. Mm -hmm. If you turn it towards the left side, it goes left. Well, this, this bike was constructed differently. If you turned it right, it turned left. If you turned it left, it turned right. So he would take this bike when he did his, he would do an experiment. He would go to the street. He would pay people to ride the bike and nobody knew how and the majority of the adults didn't know how to do it and um, <clears throat> one of the things that he realized was that because he was older he had to unlearn everything that he knew when it came to riding a bike because he would approach it as a regular bike mm -hmm. so he had to unlearn it and learn how to manipulate the new bike yeah, he had to prune out some of those uh, old pathways. But you know how long it took him to do it? It took him about eight months to do it. Wow. Yeah, so it took some months to do it. So okay. but he had a five or six-year-old son. And his son was learning how to ride a bike, a regular bike. Mm -hmm. But then he decided to give him, he, he decided to make him the same kind of bike. And he was able to adapt to it like that. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of like, it kind of goes with neuroplasticity, right? Where totally, where it's better to um, their brains are still developing at a younger age, so they're able to adapt. They're able to change up what they learned. Mm -hmm. you're older, you're too stubborn. You're so in your ways. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. There you go. Right. <laughs> so um, it was it was interesting to watch that clip because his his son had no issues doing it. No. He did it within a couple of days. Right. Whereas for him, the, the, the man himself, he, it took him eight months to, to unlearn it. But here's the funny thing is when he tried to ride a regular bicycle, mm -hmm. he couldn't do it because yeah. he, he had to unlearn it. Right. He had lost all of those old pathways that told him how to do that motor skill. And now he had pathways for a new motor skill. That, mm -hmm. that was intriguing to me. And that was, it's crazy how um, how the brain works and we still don't know enough about it. Oh yeah, that's my favorite part, the brain. I just wish more people used Question. it. That's a whole different topic. What, yes. Go ahead, Mondo, were you done? I, I'm just saying that I wish more people used their brain, but that's just a whole different topic. Oh, okay. okay. So uh, that, that kind of leads me to another question. Um, so, I actually got two. So one, is it possible to maintain a skill such as what Armando was talking about, learning how to ride a regular bike, right? And also learn a new skill such as the opposite bike, 
the one where you turn in one direction, but it actually goes the other. Is it possible to get both of those skills down and maintain both? Or would that be too difficult for our brain to handle? Um, and what would be the benefits of that? Um, well, you're going to hate me. The most popular term in physical therapy or kinesiology, as I'm sure Amanda knows, it, it depends. Mm. So it really depends on the person. But I would say, like, uh, depending on how much they're training and practicing it, that they could probably get it down. One of the principles of neuroplasticity is transference. And that's basically training in one experience can enhance similar behaviors. So I would assume that writing the basics of riding a bike would transfer to either skill. And then it would come down to the specificity, which is another, I hope I said that right, <laughs> another principle of neuroplasticity where um, you would just have to train for that specific skill in order to quote unquote master it. Mm. But I would think it's possible. I mean, people play multiple sports and I know when I was taking sports psychology that Dr. Boyd would mention all the time that playing multiple sports is really good for young kids' uh, uh, motor development and it actually makes them better athletes overall than specializing in just one specific sport. So I would assume that, yeah. I, I agree, it does depend. I'll do, I'll do you a couple, I'll, um, two things. One, I, I think it would also depend on the age. I think if you were in, in our age range, I mean, Nikki's a couple years younger than we are, but if you were to have someone around our age, then they'd have a harder time maintaining both skills, mm -hmm. especially if they're learning the skill later on. I think that would be a little harder to do. Uh -huh. But if they're, if they're a younger kid, then I think they have a better chance of maintaining both skills. Totally. But we're going to do this. But if I were to be honest, though, I would relate it to, let's relate it to, let's relate it to training. All right. To training? Let's relate it to training. Okay. So let's, let's say we're working with a bodybuilder who does a lot of isolation movements. Let's throw them into functional patterns. That would probably be out of their wheelhouse, wouldn't it? I would say so. So then reverse it and you put them into the functional patterns, they're moving better. They have more fluid movements. They have more control over their body. They're actually able to rotate. They're actually able to, their mobility is increased. But then you put them back into the isolation training, what's gonna happen? It's gonna be off, right? So I would I would say that it's possible, but I think that they it would take time for them to adjust, especially if they're older. It's gonna be even harder for them to do. Yeah, definitely. Plasticity is just more readily available in younger brains. So in general, it's just gonna be easier to have synaptogenesis and create the connections that you need. And also it depends. So like if you're riding the normal bike a lot more than you're riding the opposite bike, then you're going to be better at riding the normal bike just based off of the time spent on it, the repetitions on it, the specificity of it. But if you were riding them equally, then perhaps you'd be equally good at them. Mm, okay. That's really interesting, guys. 
uh, now I got another question based on that. So let's say you're doing these things, Mondo, bodybuilding, you know, functional patterns, Nikki, you know, riding the regular bike and then the, I'm going to say opposite bike, offset bike. Let's go with that. Um, are there any foods and you know what? And just, just to be clear, everybody out there listening and watching, we're just using these as, as examples. There's plenty of other things that you could do, but we're just using these as examples. Are there any specific foods or nutrition that can help you build and open up these neurological pathways and synapses? Yeah. Flaming hot Cheetos or lemon. <laughs> is, is, oh, is this something that's like talked about, you know, within, within that field? Um, in physical therapy, we don't typically get into nutrition too much just because uh, nutritionists are the experts in that field. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go over like the very basics of nutrition, to be honest. Uh, so I personally wouldn't be able to make any recommendations on that, but perhaps more Armando. Um, the foods that are usually recommended are like oats, um, granola, berries. I'm pretty sure omegas are good. Omegas are good too. So yeah, usually, usually those types. What's that? Like fish. Yeah, a lot of. So hopefully you guys like sushi. Okay, so is it is it fair to say that, um, it'd probably be a recommendation of uh, like fatty foods, lipid foods that the it brain, that the brain can get energy. Okay, obviously healthier. Or, fats, either right? that, either that, or a complex carb. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, you want you want some you want some you want some berries some like even raisins or cranberries you know things like that. Uh, there's some more I'm sure that it's just off the top of my head I wasn't able I'm not able to think of that but we could probably come back to this some other. Okay. Time. Yeah. I, this is this is not going to be the last time we had Nikki on here. I mean. Yeah, that's fun. Absolutely not. She's she's that's too fun. she's too smart, man. She's. Now we we definitely got to have you on. So yeah, doc, I guess, I guess. Okay. So enough, enough of my questions. We're just going to go with the next one. Okay. <laughs> Which is, uh, okay. We just talked about how older adults have a more difficult time learning a new task or unlearning a task that they've been, or let's, let's say a skill, right? right? I think that's a better way of putting it. Um, compared to Young, younger kids, you know, teenagers, they have an easier time unlearning skills or learning new skills. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between normal aging and pathological aging? How can you tell if somebody is too old um, or not too old, but at an age where it's going to be more difficult and someone else is going to be at an age where it's going to be a lot easier? Like, is there certain, a certain spectrum that you have to follow or how does that work? Um, and when it comes to like the actual number in general, I don't think there's like a specific value that you need to start looking around. I mean, typically we say like over 55 people are seniors, but that really depends on <clears throat> how well the person has taken care of themselves. So like normal aging is the cellular process that we can't stop. Like our basal metabolic rate slows down. Um, our bones get less or yeah, they get less dense. Um, we lose muscle mass, um, our kidneys stop filtering as well. Like those are all just normal parts of aging. Um, as a capacity too. So that's another one too. And then, uh, or even like, um, degeneration in your intervertebral disc, like that's normal. You lose the 
quote unquote water that's in your disc and they get smaller. So mm. those are all just normal parts of aging. But then pathological aging are things, at least in physical therapy that we go over, would be like dementia, osteoarthritis, um, strokes. And so when somebody has a pathological condition affecting their aging, <clears throat> me, that's when it gets a little bit harder to um, train them or provide rehabilitation. And that's when learning the new skills becomes harder. But that's also when neuroplasticity becomes more important, the principles of neuroplasticity and implying them in your training. Can we, uh, just for our audience, and then also for myself, um, can we go over what the principles of neuroplasticity are? Yeah, I'd love to. Awesome. Okay. So there's 10 basic principles, and a couple of them are very similar to each other. The first two are use it or lose it, or use it and improve it. Mm. And that's basically just saying um, without activation of these synaptic pathways, you're going to lose the brain function. And so uh, you want to use it as much as you can. And by using it, you're going to improve it. And so that could lead to new pathways or stronger pathways. Um, and then the next principle would be specificity. <clears throat> and that's just you want the nature of your training to be similar to the nature of the task you're performing. Um, so if you're riding a bike, you want to practice riding a bike. Or if you want to be able to lift 500 pounds, you want to practice lifting 500 pounds. And then uh, the next couple are just like basic principles of any training, repetition, intensity, and time. Um, repetition from what I've seen in research is the most important principle of neuroplasticity. Getting as much repetitions in as you can is going to really benefit the uh, learning of that skill. And then intensity depends on how many times they get that right. So the way I like to think of it is um, a pitcher. Let's say they get seven out of 10 strikes from the pitches they throw. That's a pretty good intensity. That means they got enough right where they feel good about themselves, but they also got enough wrong where they can learn from it. So when you're applying intensity into training or rehab, you really want to make sure that you're not overwhelming the client or the patient, but you also want to make sure that they do have room to make errors so they can learn from that error. Um, and then time is just how long they're doing it. More time, better. Uh, salience is the next one. And that's really just how can you make it interesting or how can you make it new um, to keep the client or the patient's attention? Because the more the patient or the client is involved in the rehab, the more they're gonna get out of it. Um, and then age, and that's really just younger brains are more readily available for neuroplasticity changes. And the last two are transference and interference. Transference is how I was saying, you can learn one skill and it can apply to a similar skill, like riding the bike and then the opposite bike. And then interference would be um, where you run into a situation that interferes with your learning, but helps you acquire a different behavior because of that. Hmm. And so those are the, I think that makes up 10 basic principles of neuroplasticity. Do you have an example for the last one, for the interference? Hmm. So maybe for example, uh, 
on like the football field, you're running a play and it didn't work out, but you found a different route to run that ended up working better. And so you chose that route instead. So something interfered with your original plan, but because of that, you found a new way to solve the problem. Okay, okay. Yeah. So not, not thinking so linearly. Right. Okay. Being able to adapt. There we go. Hey. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess I, I see you, Nikki. I see you. Yeah. Go ahead, Mondo. You follow up. You, you want me to follow that up? Yeah. You're tripping. <laughs> <laughs> nah, man. She she broke it down better than I ever could, man. I. Okay. So essentially, it's learning a new skill, putting it into action, and then all these other things come into place too, right? You don't want to overwhelm yourself. You want to make yeah. sure that you give yourself or your clients time to make mistakes, to learn, you know, um, I guess another word would be the, the learning curve, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. okay. I mean, uh, neuro rehab seems like really intimidating at the surface of it, but at the end of the day, it's very basic principles and just learning how to implement them in the right ways. I got a really good question for you based off of what you just said. So uh, you're just making me think and I like that. Um, yeah, she has a way of doing that, bro. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Um, so with that being said, right, you, you want to make sure that you don't overwhelm yourself or, or somebody you're trying to help like a client or a patient. Um, you want to make sure the intensity is just enough so they can be challenged, but have room for error so they can learn. Has there ever been a time, I guess, within the uh, physical therapy field and neuroplasticity where somebody may not be putting in as much effort, like let's say a patient that's rehabbing and you, and you can tell that they can push a little bit harder. How would you go about dealing with something like that? Like what's, what would be your advice? Um, I mean, in general, we're told to really focus on our patient language and <clears throat> like uh, using language that would give them reason to want to participate. And so um, we're never going to force somebody to do something. Um, but we may say, if you do this, you know, you're going to be able to, like, let's say they're in early rehab for a stroke and they want to get home or they want to get out of the hospital. We could use that as motivation to have them step up their participation, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's any real strategies I mean you could try making it funner which I think the salience comes into play in that um and just finding ways to make it interesting I mean sometimes you go into a session thinking that you have this plan ready to go and the patient's like absolutely not <laughs> and yeah. you have to come up with something on the fly um so I think a lot of it is just being flexible okay it really, it really is because the truth is a lot of these patients or clients that you're dealing with are either coming through a serious or traumatic injury or they've had a kind of like an illness that's been very, very like traumatic as well. 
So you're talking about like potentially torn ACL or broken leg, torn Achilles, you know, mm -hmm. or even a stroke. Mm -hmm. but a lot of these people like, and we can relate it to training too, because I've worked, I've volunteered, I've done hours at, at, at um, PT offices. And one of the things that I've taken from both our field and also in PT is that you almost work as a, not just a physical therapist, but you're also working as like a psychiatrist in, in some ways. Because you gotta listen to them. You gotta listen, because they're, they're not gonna come, they're hurting. They're, they're not working the way that they used to. So they're not gonna come in in the best moods. So you gotta be ready to adjust. You gotta be ready for anything, right? So you might they might come in angry. They might come in just depressed, sad. Mm -hmm. And it's up to you. And it's like, it, it's, it really is like being a trainer. You have to be, you have to bring the energy. You have to be the one that provides the boost. So sometimes you're gonna be, so if it's a, like when I was there, it was a stroke victim and he couldn't use the left side of his body. And he would just sit there and he was just feeling sorry for himself and he wasn't really participating much. And you're, you, you could see that he, he had made some kind of strides, but because he was so depressed, he allowed himself to take a step back. So when you have situations like that, you, you got to figure out ways to boost them up, maybe make them laugh a little bit. And um, part of our uh, like initial evaluations that we do at the beginning of uh, getting a patient and then at the beginning of every session um, is screening for things like that, screening for things like uh, depression or fear avoidance or learned non-use um, so that we can hopefully plan ways, uh, like if we suspect something, especially when it comes to um, like depression issues, we really wanna make sure that we're screening for potential serious issues so that if we need to, we can ask this person like, hey, do you think you need a referral somewhere? Like, is there somebody I can help get you to talk to? Um, Cause yeah, that's a really big part of the, I'm sure you guys see it as well, training people who have injuries, it can be, really depressing when you are restricted from your normal participation activities yeah it can be it can be a they're so even when even when they're not injured like sometimes the, some of the clients don't have the right attitude they still don't look at for example like the three of us when we look at a workout we look at it as it's part of it's part of our lifestyle it's part of who we are to them, it's just a, uh, man, I gotta do this workout. This is just part, this is just like a, an optional part of the day. Mm -hmm. So I think, so that's something that we had to spend some time working with too, is we had to change that mentality from, it's a privilege or a luxury or whatever. So it's something that they don't have to do to, it's a lifestyle, it's a lifestyle, it's, it's the way you live. Yeah, you have to give them like intrinsic motivation. Exactly. So we got to push them because they, they need that push. But at the same time, you got to also train them into believing that this is part of who you are. This is what I do here at the gym or what I, what I teach you is like for that one hour, that's just part of it. It doesn't stop when you leave. 
it keeps going. So that that applies to to PT. Like so, when you're dealing with when you're dealing with all these people who are injured, stroke victims, or just severe injuries, they you need to you need to really help them with the way they think because they might be if they're especially if they're an athlete, they're like, man. My career's over, my career's this. It's like, no, not necessarily. It's, you got it. how motivated are you to recover from this? How motivated are you to, to bounce back? Like, you got to just be willing to put in that work. I'd say a large part of it is minimizing catastrophic thinking. Because yes. I'm sure we've all been there. I mean, I had knee surgery when I was 15. And at that point, I had been playing softball for like 11 years. And immediately I was like, it's over. I'm never going to play again. <laughs> it, like I have no chance. And so, I mean, even myself, like, I feel like I know a lot of the times where the patients are coming from because I've been there myself. So that's really useful to me, I feel. And I think the best thing that you can do is relate to them is from your own injuries as well. Right. So I feel like um, a lot of it is finding ways to show them how important these things are and that it's not just a short-term thing that's going to benefit them, but in the long-term, it's going to be a lifestyle change or it's going to be something that really benefits them. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So kind of like, uh, like coaching them up with pep talks, you know, getting them hyped up, like, like how a coach would get his players hyped up before a game, you know, get them yeah. inspired. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So with that being said, um, we mentioned a few times about talking to, let's say, um, stroke victims. So how would you go about training them to start being, um, or getting back to their independence, which they once had? Um, I mean, a lot of it starts with like basic things like um, just how to sit back up in bed or how to get from bed to the wheelchair. Um, but overall, when you're um, in stroke rehab, a lot of it comes down to repetition. And unfortunately, in outpatient physical therapy, which is um, the client comes to the, uh, the clinic or the office for their session, mm -hmm. um, we as physical therapists could do a lot better in how many repetitions we're providing those patients. Um, so that's one area that we have started paying a lot more attention to. Um, but then there's also acute care where you're in the hospital or inpatient rehab, such as skilled nursing facilities. And in there, they focus a lot, a lot, a lot on time and repetition. Um, to go to an acute care facility, you have to be able to stand three to six hours of therapy every single day. Um, so a lot of the strategies come down to just the basic neuro, neuroplasticity principles. With that being said, obviously we know that stroke victims, um, a stroke affects your brain, right? Is there, well, is there any data that's been collected that shows it affects one side of the brain more than the other? Yeah, so um, if you have a stroke on your right side, your impairments are going to be on your left side. I did that backwards. This is your left side. This is your right side. Okay. If you have a stroke on the right side, you'll have left side impairments. Um, and then it also depends on what blood vessel in the brain is affected. Um, so each blood vessel serves a different part of the brain. 
most often the middle cerebral artery is the one that's affected and that's what controls your face face arm and leg and that's why the classic signs of a stroke are droopy face unable to move their arms slurred speech um so yeah it and then also it depends so the middle cerebral artery goes over half of your brain so you have one on each side and depending where along that the lesion is is going to depend on if your arm's more affected or your legs more affected and so on mm, okay so it's it's contralateral then yes right? opposite sides mm -hmm. okay um with with the pt exercises uh let's say that um are most commonly used and i guess maybe you can you know uh educate us on that has there been a dramatic increase in cognitive function, brain activity, and, and them coming back from these strokes and basically almost going to normal? Um, so I did find a little bit of research that was saying that uh, physical activity modulates some of the underlying mechanisms of uh, neuroplasticity. So um, like synaptogenesis and those sort of things. So uh physical activity can prime cognitive training but i personally haven't seen like a i haven't done the research but i haven't seen a direct correlation between the physical training and the cognitive um regaining like the cognitive function of being regained but uh there is for example when we're doing our assessments we do assess their cognitive behavior um, and there are things like uh, memory games and things like that we can do to work on it. But um, in general, that's not our main focus with the strategies. But I do think the research shows that by working on the physical aspect, you improve the cognitive as well. Gotcha. Okay. Armando, did you have a question for the last one? Yeah, I was just going to ask, and I think this kind of falls into like user or loser, or maybe they're non-use. But as far as um, when you work with the stroke victims and they're, they're working how to stand up and so forth, how much work do you have to do just to, because I'm sure they're feeling depressed because of the fact that they're learning is such a basic, uh, basic move, right? Just something like, just like a basic movement. How much, how much of that do you have, how much of time do you have to invest in getting them to get over that little depression? if uh, I may ask. Um, you would assume that, but from what I've seen, um, we've got to work with a few stroke victims that those basic functions that we take for granted being neurotypical, um, those are what they want to regain most after their injury. So being able to get up out of bed, being able to stand up, being able to walk to the bathroom, are their main goals so a lot of times they are very motivated to get those done okay so they're, they're pretty right because like imagine if one day you woke up and all of a sudden you couldn't even sit up in bed um it may seem like a very menial task but if you can't do that then you can't start your day so to them that's a big deal yeah you know speaking of that i don't know if i think you took Maybe we'll talk about this afterwards, but did you watch that video of the man that lost his body? Um, I believe so. He's British. Yes. Yeah. I think we watched it in anatomical kinesiology. 
he literally lost his uh, ability to actually control his body. He couldn't, he couldn't move his feet without actually looking at him. So mm -hmm. he, he lost, like he had some nerve. Proprioception. He lost all of it. His, oh, that's crazy. So yeah. he, he couldn't. So for example, like if you look at my, if you're watching the video, you see my fingers, I'm, I'm touching my uh, thumb with all my fingers. Yeah. Simple stuff, right? Yeah. He couldn't do that. Unless he looked at his hand? He had to look at it. Oh, that's crazy. He couldn't. To walk, he had to watch where he was putting his feet. Proprioception is where your body is in, in relation to space. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we're stepping, it's automatic. We don't have to think about where we're putting our foot. But he lost that sense. And so now he has to... Um, look at every step he takes and if you turn the lights off he can't walk yeah it, I, actually sent, I actually sent you that video not too long ago jojo it was that it was that video that was like about 40 minutes or something long oh okay 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 you remember right now yeah but, yeah okay now i remember having trouble getting out like sitting up in bed at first yeah he, he couldn't even do that that that's crazy bro is there any way to train proprioception or or that's gone if that's gone that's gone um, a lot of it is, uh, <laughs> it's hard to explain, but essentially it's moving a body part in space and having them try to detect it. So um, for example, on the hemiparetic side, we might have them lean on their elbow and be like, all right, this is your elbow, mm -hmm. this is your shoulder, and just help them reorient their brain to oh okay yeah that is my shoulder yeah that is my elbow mm. getting them getting them neurologically aware of their body right like you said mm -hmm. being able to control your body in space a lot more mm -hmm. okay that's really interesting yeah so a lot of times to test that after like a, i'll just go back to stroke um we'll take the patient's big toe and we'll wiggle it and we'll be like all right tell me if this is back or forward and if they um can't tell at the toe we'll move up the body chain until we can find a place where they can tell mm, okay and what's what's the purpose of that is that to like figure out what's uh part of the body specifically um, how far the damage has gone basically okay. so like if you have proprioception down to your big toe then your proprioception is likely fine um, but for example, if you don't have any proprioception, like from your hip to your toe, you're going to have a really hard time stepping and being able to figure out where your leg is in relation to space. That makes sense. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff. I guess, I guess that'll lead us to, you know, uh, our next part, which is, um, learn helplessness. You know, I wonder how much of these, how many of these patients or what percentage of them are just just feel like there's there's no coming back from this? Actually, it's learned learn non-use. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, um, I learned about learned helplessness a lot in sports psychology, and they're pretty similar. Learn non-use, learn helplessness, but learn helplessness is essentially um, you didn't win a game, so you think you're never going to win a game, mm -hmm. and so you become very self-pitying. And then learn non-use is um, a little similar, but it's more seen, uh, for example, in stroke patients where they lose control over a half the side of their body. So they're only using their non-affected side. 
And so a big part of, especially early rehabilitation, when the arm is completely unusable, is just getting that patient to still recognize like, hey, you have another arm. How about we at least put it on the table while you're playing with your phone or whatever you're doing with your good arm. Um, so it is really common for patients like that to just completely neglect that side of their body and have learned non-use. So a big part of our part as physical therapists is even if they can't use it, getting them to recognize that it's still there so that we can hopefully force recovery back into it. And it's, it's so, I'm so glad that we, that we put this in here because Joe was, was training some years ago. This is, I want to say three, four years ago. He was, he was explaining to a couple of people in the class about how we had a we had a client that was injured what was it an ankle injury joe yeah it was ankle it was an ankle injury and they didn't want to do anything on their ankle and they completely like wrapped it up to the point where it was immobile so joe starts talking about how that actually does more harm because you're learning you're basically teaching yourself not to use that you really want to have mobility in those in, in those injured areas yeah it hurts obviously right but when you have mobility there what's going to happen you're going to get more circulation you're going to get more circulation you're going to have more mobility it's going to strengthen it's going to get stronger that's what you want you want to be able to to move so when when we're talking about that portion i thought of joe immediately because i remember him doing that in the class and he was explaining to that client and it started to create a domino effect in the gym because before that it was like, oh, don't put any weight on that. Don't, don't hit it. Don't touch it. And it wasn't updated. And that's when we started doing, that's when we started getting more into functional movement. And now what you see with functional patterns. Yeah, totally. So and also, oh, go on. No, I was just going to say that that was a big, big Dominant, it was less so, so it, it reminded me of Joe immediately because he was talking about how when you have a, when you have a wrist injury, when you have an ankle injury, you have, especially with the ankle, because it's so, um, the way it's built is a little complex, right? It's a ball joint. It's a ball joint. So you want to have that type of, you want to have the rotation because if your knee is not rotating or if your ankle is not rotating, your knee, which is not supposed to rotate, starts to rotate. So there you go. Yeah, and it also leads into um, what we also screen for, which is fear avoidance. Because mm-hmm. um, that's like a huge thing in physical therapy is uh, obviously physical therapy isn't the best feeling. A lot of people like to call it pain and torture instead of physical therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've but, heard that from a lot of clients before. Um, they say that when I train them. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I can understand where the fear comes from. So that's definitely something that we have to um, acknowledge and work around. And so a lot of times when patients or clients sustain an injury, they'll self-restrict their behavior out of fear of making it worse. When in reality, immobilizing it and losing your range of motion, losing your strength is actually going to make it a lot worse. Yep. Um, And then also... 
sometimes you'll see, for example, um, a patient with a back injury or an ACL injury, uh, they'll go to the doctor and somebody will say, you know, I don't want you to squat or I don't want you to bend your back. So then they leave thinking, I can never squat again. I can never bend my back again. And that's not realistic and that's not helpful. And so a lot of the times we have to be, uh, we have to reframe their thinking. And it's like, well, I just don't want you to fully bend your knee right now, but how about we go to this pain-free range? And then next time you come, we'll try to go to a bigger range. And so a lot of it is just reframing the way they think to try to get rid of that fear avoidance. Yeah. it's. Um... They're really trying to prevent them from atrophy because they could atrophy during that time. They could really, you could lose muscle or. Losing range of motion, that's a huge deal because then you have to compensate from other areas. So mm -hmm. if you lose dorsiflexion in your ankle, your running is going to be messed up. Your stair climbing is going to be messed up, everything. You just said range of motion. Mm -hmm. I can feel Joe smiling in his soul. <laughs> I mean, I you know Armando Armando's uh, right when he when he when he says that um, because over the years you know as I've as I've educated myself more I've learned more um, I've tried to tell my clients this because initially it was okay if their shoulder hurts or they have something wrong with their rotator cuff their knee hip whatever right and they told me they didn't want to do something because it hurt I was initially taught like okay we're not doing that right. As I said, as I started learning a little bit more, well, a little bit of pain as you're trying to make your rehab, your recovery, you're going to have to go through that acute pain so that that pain does not stay or become chronic, right? As long as you're not putting a heavy load on it or anything like that, and, and we're doing our prep work, you know, our, 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 uh, our tissue work before, and, and we're incorporating all the things that we need to, to just start moving that part of the body, so that it doesn't calcify, it doesn't harden, it doesn't cast over, because when that happens, that's going to lead to more problems. And I've dealt with clients that, you know, throughout the body with every single joint you could possibly think of, didn't want to move, and I'm trying to get them to move a little bit, trying to get them to understand, but that fear, that fear is, is a huge thing, and then it leads us to our next thing, catastrophic thinking. I can't move my arm whatsoever, because as soon as I lift my arm over my head, oh, my shoulder and my neck starts killing me try to explain there's reasons for that. We have to, we have to prep that part of the body, but we do want to move it. So how would you go about um, getting somebody to not think, you know, very negatively, catastrophically? Um, me personally, uh, a lot of it is showing them and explaining to them that pain doesn't always mean something's wrong. Um, a lot of the times, for example, let's say shoulder impingement, um, we need to work past that available range so that we can get your range of motion back and work on getting rid of the impingement. Um, so that pain, while it may be uncomfortable, it's also an important part of therapy. So explaining to them, you know, it's not always going to be comfortable, but that in itself is a good thing because that means we're pushing past the limits that we need to. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, if a patient comes back and they're like, oh my gosh, after you stretched me, I wasn't able to move for two days. I'll probably take it down a little bit, yeah. but I would personally try to, 
frame the way I'm saying things so that they see the importance of it and so that they understand that pain doesn't mean they're going to die or that their arm's going to fall off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, one thing, please correct me if I'm wrong here. Right. But, um, one thing that I have been teaching my clients within the last couple of years is pain through rehab as we're getting it better is going to happen right? Because we're trying to rehab and repair the injury and get your body functioning the way it's supposed to. So that way, when you go through your daily activities and you're able to start doing more things in your life that you were limited to doing, you don't have that pain in your everyday life. It's yeah, just totally. about trying to get past this. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And I mean, um, especially for you guys, I mean, you could probably frame it in the way of after you exercise, you're sore. But that doesn't mean it was bad. That means it was good. That means you're building muscle. Yeah. And here's something that I want to bring up because I think that both of you guys will agree with this. You mentioned earlier that if we don't address an injury, you can change the way you move and your, your body will overcompensate. One of the things that I always, I always, always, always ask about when I do a consultation is I ask them, what is your injury history? I don't care how long ago it was. I don't care how long it is. What is your injury history? Because the, the normal response is, well, I had this injury years ago, but it doesn't hurt me anymore. Mm -hmm. But it still changes the way you move. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's never addressed. There you go. Thank you. And then another, so it, when it comes down to it, like it changes the way you move and you don't realize it. And then also it kills off the nerves. So your brain is not really, re, is not really uh, communicating with those said injuries or said, said um, body parts or those nerves in those areas. So whenever you do get adjusted, like if you go to the chiropractor, you get adjusted or you go to the physical therapist, you get stretched, you get massage, you get, you get worked on. You're, of course, you're going to feel some soreness and some pain because your body's fine. Your brain is finally communicating with those nerves in those areas that were in, that had experienced trauma, trauma because it was injured. I'm re I'm really glad you said that, Armando, because just like you said, those injuries happen. That part of the body starts to harden, right? Cast over, and yeah. then, like Nikki was saying, you then start to compensate your movement in other areas. But as soon as you get that part of the body moving again, you're gonna be like, oh man, it hurts again. This hasn't hurt me in years. That's because it's been stuck. Now that you're moving the way you're supposed to, and we're trying to implement it with the rest of your body, so your so your functionality increases. Now there's pain because you haven't used it. Just like you said, Armando, your nervous system starting to communicate with that part of your body again. This is what you need to address that you haven't addressed. Just because it wasn't hurting doesn't mean you're okay. You're going to start having other problems throughout your kinetic chain, throughout your body down the road. This is what we're trying to 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 limit, to decrease, to get rid of, and then. It's, so if you guys want me to draw for you, here's a picture that I can draw. Think of low, low back pain, right? You drive a lot. Sit down. Then what's the common complaint that we get when we when people come to physical therapy? People come to the trainers. My lower back hurts. My lower back hurts. What's the biggest re what, the the biggest thing that that I've learned? is that a lot of people don't act like don't activate the glutes people think the glutes are just something that you sit on or something that you look at that's <laughs> <you> don't. <laughs> not saying that you don't but 
if they twerking, no, <laughs> same with the the transverse abdominis as well. Um, yeah. A lot of the times for low back patients, the first. Can you guys hear my dog? I'm sorry. It's okay. Hi, <laughs> um, a lot of the like the first exercise we'll uh, prescribe to low back patients is just posterior tilts with your pelvis, getting your transverse abdominis engaged because a lot of times people just let that go and that's a big problem and it can cause lots of back pain and it's it, it's crazy because if you don't activate the glutes you want to be able to move out of your hips so for example when you're bending over right people think that, that if, you, if you watch the majority of the people do it <laughs> People need to activate the glutes, y'all. If you don't activate the glutes, you're, you're not going to be able to bend over from the hips. If, and people, when you watch them bend over, especially, now don't people don't take that the wrong way. When I say when you watch people bend over, <laughs> you have, you have to. Watch, you have to thinking about it like that until you said that. <laughs> well, you know. Well, you know. Keep going. Keep going. Welcome to the adapt session. But you know, I, I think it's just one of those things where people don't realize that when you're bending over, you're actually using your glutes to bend over. It's actually, you're using the hips to do it. But if you watch the majority of the people, they're bending over with their lower back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a, it's, yeah, it's just, your, your point is on point, Nikki's point is on point, they go right together. You can't activate the glutes properly if your um, lumbar pelvic hip complex is not where it needs to be, if it's not lined up, so. It has to be lined up correctly in order for all that to be working for your TVA, glutes, all that to be working. And uh, this is kind of obvious, right? But newsflash, man, the, the glutes are actually a, a, mus a group of muscles, not just one. Gluteus yeah. maximus, gluteus medius, gluteus minimus. So there's three different levels of it, and you guys got to activate all three of them. If you're not using any of them, then that's a major reason why your back is hurting usually a major reason why a lot of areas are hurting because as you said there it's a it's a large group of muscles not just one mm -hmm. and everything's connected so when something's off something else in that area or somewhere else across the body is off your misaligned tissues have too much compression or not the right amount of tension things are pulling and pushing each other your body's not working in unison as as that one system as it should be your body's fighting each other during movements. That's what we're trying to get rid of. Your glute med is super important. People always want to talk about the glute max, but your glute medius is really important for abduction and external rotation. And especially in women with um, our higher Q angles, which is the angle of our femur, femur to our pelvis, um, having a strong glute med is really important for being able to control um, dynamic knee flexion and a whole bunch of, especially in sports, it's really important to have a strong glute med. Um, so often that's, again, one of our first go-to exercises is just having a patient do clamshells and work up their glute med strength. Glad yep. you mentioned that because I know that I have some clients that are listening to this and they're, and they're, they're cursing at me because I always make them do band work and I have them do clamshells. I have them do a whole bunch of, uh, hip opening exercises yeah. and they're talking about how much their booty meat hurts. <laughs> so it's like, 
And it's like, hey, at least you got the use of me. I'm showing you how to use it. And then they get mad at me and they're cursing at me and they're like, they're, they're telling me, go fuck off. I want to go fuck you. I'm like, uh, I'm like, I love you too. And, and then, it's probably because it hasn't been used very often, you know? Then, so now it's getting its butt kicked. And then the next day, they're able to do kettlebells flawlessly. And then they're like, oh my gosh, thank you. Right. I'm showing you how to use your body. Yeah, it's funny how all interdependent our body is. Yes. Very much so. Very, very much, much so. so. I guess this takes us into our next thing then, right? I mean, we've been talking about a wide range of, of patients or clients from stroke victims to people just trying to get in shape. And then you mentioned athletes, right? So obviously intensity would play a different, um, it would play a different role in each of those uh, type of clients training. How would you go about doing that with, let's say stroke victim, um, some person who just had like a, you know, a, a slip in a fall type of injury and then an athlete trying to get them back on the field? Um, me personally, for the stroke victim, I want them to uh, get it right more times than they don't. So that way they can just create that motor program in their head for that task or skill, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, somebody that's more of just like a quote unquote regular citizen um, I think I would probably make it about even, like they got it right five times, they got it wrong, if we're going in that term, wrong f five times. And so um, they don't get discouraged at how much they're getting it wrong, but they also have that feedback that they need. Um, and then for a high elite athlete, um, not only would I obviously up the reps and the time and everything else that goes with it, but I would try to make it um, more intense, but not so intense that they're getting it wrong every time, you know, because you still want them to be able to build up that confidence and get the skills down that they need. But I would definitely um, make it the most intense for them. Gotcha. It, what, with that being said, would it be fair to say um, that intensity doesn't really matter as far as what the person's coming back from or what they're trying to accomplish, but it matters more so for the individual? Yeah. So I wouldn't um, classify it based off like an injury or pathology, okay. but more so off the individual. So especially if you have somebody that is already really discouraged or if you have somebody that's really motivated, you can base it off of that. So somebody that's really motivated, having a more intense training isn't going to affect them um, negatively as it might be somebody who's already discouraged. Uh, that, that, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, I'm, I'm no athlete. I'm just, you know, regular guy, likes to work out myself, happen to be a trainer. But I feel okay. for myself when, when something's more challenging and more intense, and, and, and I'm not getting it right. Sure, I get a little frustrated, but that inspires me to go a little harder. Like I need to push right. harder, I gotta get this right. So, you know, it just depends on the person. I know Armando's like that too, so. Joe's, Joe's an athlete. <laughs> I appreciate it. Quit lying your ass off. <laughs> so I guess let's, let's go into this in intensity, right? We just talked about intensity. Let's go into the 10,000 hour theory. Oh, what, do perfect. <laughs> what do you think about that? And I know Armando has a little something to say. 
So, you know, whoever wants to go first, let's, let's get into it. Sure. Um, I mean, personally, I don't have an issue with the 10,000 hour theory. I've heard there's some controversy on it and especially in literature, uh, there's been some conflicting evidence on how accurate it is, but I mean, at the basics of it, it's really just the principles of neuroplasticity. So repetition, specificity, time, intensity, use it and improve it. Um, so it's not like you can go wrong uh, training under these principles, but I think the controversy maybe comes from, can anybody ever really be an expert? Because the whole concept behind the theory is to be an expert in something, you need at least 10,000 hours of training in it. Um, but I mean, what is an expert? How can you say somebody's an expert? Right. So I, I guess, um, let, let me add this to that. Um, so would it, would it be the difference between being efficient at a skill and then becoming proficient because there's a difference, right? Mm -hmm. what, would you say that's, that's how they would classify if you're an expert or not? I think that'd be a good way. I mean, I've never um, looked it up specifically in regards to this, but I think that's like a good way of framing it. Um, you can be efficient at something, but that doesn't necessarily uh, correlate with being an expert. So I'd say, I like your definition. I think that sounds good. It, the, the only reason I bring this up, right, is because, um, okay, let's say this. Uh, so I am learning how to box, right? Mm -hmm. From where I started to where I am now, I would say I'm efficient, mm -hmm. but I'm not proficient. I would say that's elite level, right? right? Where those guys just do it naturally. They right. know how to move. They know how to throw their punches. I'm becoming efficient where I'm, I'm learning how to do that. And I'm becoming a, a lot more comfortable with mm -hmm. the foot movement, you know, the punches coordination, but I'm, but I'm not at that level that at least that's how I like to think of it. You know, there's, there's a difference between learning a skill and becoming pretty good at it. And then there's like elite level proficiency. Right, so right. That's the only reason why I brought that up. No. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that uh, makes sense. Okay. It makes sense to me too, man. I think uh, Nikki, put it perfectly right like 10,000 hours I don't know about the ex the doing the 10,000 hours just to become an expert thing I'm like really because also what if for example the training you're doing in that 10,000 hours isn't the right training hmm. you know That's the point. Yeah. or it becomes obsolete like and we have experience with that Joe I mean diminished returns yeah. yeah. Look yeah. at look at the training that we did. Okay. Look at the training that we did when we were first starting out with the gym. Mm -hmm. Do we train that way now? Not so much, no. Very no. rarely. It doesn't work for, and it doesn't work for us. We're able to we become I feel like we become experts because now I'm able to like with all due respect to some of these other people who like to do, oh, it's leg day or it's chest day, it's arm day, even though that's every day. But <laughs> it, when people do like the, the, when they split up the brackets, they're usually doing a lot of isolation movements, right? Yeah, like we were talking about earlier. And I, and I talked about it in previous episodes. I did a, I did a conditioning class at SS State and I, the workout got, it got me sweating I did sweat, I did burn calories, 
but I hated the fact that I was I couldn't move the next day, and I didn't and I wasn't satisfied. So I like I've gotten to the point where now I I know what's going to satisfy me in terms of a workout. Mm. I like the full body. I like being I like the functional movement. I like the functional patterns. But it's I know why I like it. I know I know why it, I. I know why it works for me. Whereas if I just do a generic workout, I, I know it's not going to satisfy me. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, going off of what Nikki said and going off of what you said, right? You, you're, you're talking about um, doing something that because you know a little bit more now, it's not, let's say, the best for your body and, and overall functionality. And then, like Nikki said, well, you can be training a certain way, but it might not be the correct way, right? Exactly. Like, for example, we get a lot of people that do like long distance running right? Like marathon, nothing wrong with running. I like running, right? Run, running is, is something that we naturally do as human beings. It's part of our biology. That's how, that's how our, our mechanics were actually made for, to run and throw. Um, but there are people whose gait cycles are uh, slightly dysfunctional. And that's why, let's say after they run, you know, handful of miles, their knees hurting, their hips hurting, something is going on with your gait cycle. Your movement is not proper it's not correct and that's where that training comes in even though you're training your butt off you're training really hard to get ready for this marathon you're not moving well so mm -hmm. we need to we need to address those things so you can move correctly mm -hmm. i'm so happy that you brought up the gait cycle because that's something that a lot of people overlook that's my favorite <laughs> there we go <laughs> yeah so i think uh so the the gait cycle is something that's very overlooked so underappreciated because I think you can learn like everybody has their everybody has their imbalances right muscular imbalances everybody has their yep. stuff but you want to have a decent you want to be able to move contralaterally you want to be able to walk walk and run smoothly because everything is dependent on how you move how you throw those are our primary functions. Everything else is secondary, triary. I mean, that you can deadlift, you can bench press, you can do all that stuff. That stuff's great. That's a, there's nothing wrong with it. However, if you neglect our primary functions as human beings, what we evolved to do, stand, walk, run, throw, then you're going to start to impede those mechanics. You're going to start to have some problems. And it's another thing, and it's like, it's like Nikki mentioned earlier, right? When we get sore, it's a good it's a good sign mm -hmm. but at the same time you want to be productive sore you don't want to it's like i told you like when i do the isolation movements i'm not do i'm not feeling satisfied because it's impeding my movement it's not helping my movement so when i do functional patterns i get my ass kicked and i get sore it hurts but i can do this not like after chest day, right? Where your chest is so sore you can't lift your arm above your head or something. Yeah. Yeah, or or freaking like trying to do, or like trying to do like a, a freaking hamstring curl and you can't even sit down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, there's there's a there's a lot of um, things that as a fitness industry that we need to correct, but you know that's neither here nor there. But I'm glad y'all brought it up. Actually, let's go actually, ahead. If we do another gym myths episode. Uh -huh. I want to formally invite you as a, with your expertise in the gate, 
because I want to informally invite you to make fun of these movements with us. Oh, right. <laughs> because that's where that's where Joe had the classic line, who the fuck comes up with this shit? That's so funny. That sounds awesome. He actually, it, it, actually got, it actually got us a guard. We had to stop recording because he's like, no, I'm serious. Who came up with this shit? But it, it just really comes, it really comes down to, to proficiency versus efficiency, right? Like personally, if we were to use a movement, I would say kettlebells, right? Mm-hmm. I like kettlebells. We've been doing it now for about a decade. When we started, we couldn't do shit. Very, very tough to do. I, could, I couldn't swing that thing for the life of me. And it hurt. Literally, we bruised ourselves. We got shin burgers. We got bruises all over the place. And now we do it with ease to the point where if we got away from it for a while, if I literally stopped and just stopped for about a month, two months, three months, okay? Our muscle memory will remember it and we'll be able to pick it up like that. Can I say one thing? Yeah. Muscle memory is not technically a thing. You guys have the programs in your brain for that motor task. Thank you. You don't know how many Thank times clients this and people this. Like muscle memory is not a real thing. But I mean, I, like oh. for patient terms or layman terms, muscle memory, you know, it's, that's it's, just the term everybody knows. It's fine, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that's the reason why. I'm so glad you said that. You don't know how many, like, <laughs> I'm, telling, I'm telling my boys, was, clients, like muscle memory, that's not true. Your your muscles don't remember I'm anything. So happy. I'm so happy that you picked up on that. I'm like, I'll see you. I'm like, pick up on it please pick up on it yeah i was like that's the homie right there that's the reason why but see you you implemented the principles of neuroplasticity you created the synaptic pathways to create the motor program in your brain for that motor task look everybody listening watching muscle memory is not real don't say that to me (laughs) Your muscles here. don't have a brain. Yes, they do not. <laughs> Jeez, you have no, you have no idea how many times I'm like going back and forth with my friends or something about this. Like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Trust me, I wish I had that many extra brains. Unfortunately, I know a lot of people don't even have one. But that's- <laughs> so, I, I'm so happy that Nikki picked up on that, but. You, you mentioned something yourself, Joe, earlier today. You're talking about proficiency versus efficient. Yes, sir. Just because someone's efficient or just because someone's proficient, how does that correlate to teaching? Like, can we, can, do you guys want to talk about a little bit about how just because, let's use an athlete, for example, right? Like, just because Buster Posey's a really good hitter doesn't mean that he's going to be able to teach, teach me or you or Nikki. Mm-hmm how to be that guy that good of a hitter right right totally I think a lot of it especially when you're talking in terms of like coaching um a lot of it comes down to like uh are they able to implement the theories of motor learning like part versus whole practice closed versus open environment yada 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 and then on top of it um like the sports psychology aspect of it as well um being able to be a coach takes a lot more than just knowing the skill mm. in my opinion i think so too i agree I would, I would completely agree with you yeah i think uh i think so let's say let's go with um 
I'm going to use myself as an example, okay? Let's say Armando just talked about kettlebells. I feel pretty um, competent and and uh, confident in, in using that piece of equipment, doing a lot of different things with it. Um, I do feel that it, it might come a little bit easier to me than with other people, mm-hmm. right? From what I've seen, you know, people coming into the gym, learning how to use that. So um, learning how to for myself, learning how to scale the movements that I may do down to a more simpler version and then being able to teach the clients that first, being able to modify those movements, right? Depending on where that specific clients or clients are at that particular time. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, making sure that they can adapt to the movement, motor learning, right? motor control, motor development, and then we can start picking it up from there as they start to feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I I think it has a lot to do with understanding that you may be good at it, but the people that that you may be coaching may not even start off at the level where you started at, Mm -hmm. let's say, right? And I'm not going to say up or down. It's not that. It's just, you know, depending on uh, if people, some, for example, I have an athletic background. So some of the stuff comes a little bit easier to me, right? Mm-hmm. I played sports. Other people who may, who may have not played sports and they're trying to get into training to be healthy, take care of themselves. You know, let's say they were just, just in uh, academia, right? Studying all the time. Now they're like, you know what? It's time for me to exercise as an adult. They may not have that background that I have. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, let's say the skill set that I have built up before. So you have to completely start them off at a different level, base level, and allow them to make some mistakes, mm-hmm. get some things right so they feel good and they learn from those mistakes and they continue, they continue to move forward. Everything basically that Nikki was talking about earlier. Yeah. Just so everybody's listening, everybody has different skill sets, all right? So Joe is a very Joe has a very powerful core. So he's gonna be able to do not just a regular pull-up, but he'll be able to tag to put a belts and attach 45 pound plates to it or kettlebells to it and do a pull up but at one point I was able I think Joe could attest to this I was better at doing box jumps at one point than he was mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Totally. So, I mean, yeah I, I know and some, that's I mean, another part about being able to teach it is being able to understand that not everybody's gonna uh look the same even though you teach them the same and that you it's not just like one size fits all just because you taught or coached somebody one way and it worked for them doesn't mean it's going to work for the other person because like you said some things just come more naturally like I know for me personally in terms of PT school uh, a lot of my friends struggle with the gate cycle but to me I just it just comes naturally to me I just look at it and understand it so that's like I think another big part of it is realizing that not everybody's gonna come into it with the same mindset or see it from the same perspective so just because you're really good at it doesn't mean that the way that worked for you is going to work for them and I I think that makes a really good coach be somebody being able to understand that Mm -hmm. and that's something that we've said before on this podcast is it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to training you you have you really had to adjust to the client that you have because one client might be naturally gifted. The other person might be injured. The other person mm-hmm. might not be yeah. athletically gifted or they might be a little clumsier. 
Mm-hmm. So it's gonna be you gotta teach them how to use their body. Yeah. And your body is your you got one body, you gotta take care of it. And now with with that, with all that being said, now we can switch topics and Nikki, one of the reasons why you and I get along is because we have issues with <laughs> my <laughs> We have issues, just period. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Oh, migraines are a pain in the ass. And totally. We we bonded over the fact that we would have these horrible things at times. Mm-hmm. But one of the, the one of the things that actually helps people who suffer from migraines is actually cannabis intake. Mm-hmm, definitely. So I would love to ask you guys, how do you feel about CBD and cannabis intake yourself and how it's helped you? Uh, Well, not only migraine. I mean, I remember early in my college career, uh, I was taking a speech class and we had to do a speech. And so I've always been very interested in the topic of medical marijuana and the effects of CBD. So I did a speech on that. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story of Charlotte's Web, not the pig and the spider, but no, not that one, (laughs) a different one. So this story of Charlotte's Web is about um, a little girl who was born with severe epilepsy and she would have upwards of 300 seizures a week. And yeah, and her parents would try a whole bunch of uh, therapies for her, blah, 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 comes down to they try CBD and she went from having 300 seizures a week to two to three a month with the help of CBD. And so she essentially became the spokesperson for medical CBD and access to it. And so, um, I, that's always been a very influential story in my life. And so, uh, I think personally that CBD has a lot of beneficial effects. Um, I know that it's very helpful for uh, migraines and then also on top of that, increasing appetite for people like stroke victims, Mm. I'm sorry, cancer victims. Especially like coma victims too. Mm -hmm. Issues. Um, Yeah. Or like my friend, she has um, a lot of like gastrointestinal issues. And it's like the um, one thing that can help her actually like calm down and eat because most mornings she wakes up very nauseous and ends up throwing up and so um she was prescribed like Zofran which is like an anti-nausea medicine and a whole bunch of other medications that one she didn't like they didn't make her feel good they didn't help and once she started taking the CBD she actually got some relief Mm. that's actually really some of those drugs are really heavy yeah totally go I was going to say, it's, it's actually really, uh, cannabis is more natural. So your body's like, your body reacts to it differently than the word these, these foreign drugs that are supposed that really like take a toll on your body. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I know people still have very different opinions based on it. And even the research behind it isn't very conclusive, but the research behind it is it's hard to do research on it. I mean, it's still classified as a schedule one drug, which means that 
it technically can't be researched for medical purposes at this point. So um, it's it's got a journey to come, but I think it's come a long way so far. Absolutely, I agree with that. I think there's still a stigma with it. Yeah, I mean, I follow, um, obviously, I don't know if I said this, but I want to specialize in children with developmental delays. And so I follow a bunch of families, either Facebook or Instagram or wherever it be that have children with developmental delays and almost all of them are fighting for their kids right to have CBD as medicine for a number of conditions and so um, it's nice to see that it's getting traction but it's also sad to see because we live in California we're really blessed (laughs) we've had medical marijuana since the 90s there's still places that you will be in, pr- in prison for having a gram of medical marijuana on you, you know, yeah. or a family I follow in Missouri has been fighting for their son's access to CBD for years. And he's just now finally being able to get it when he's 13. And wow. it's really imp- I'm actually really happy with the NBA because they finally abolished the uh, suspension for, for uh, marijuana. Really? I didn't know that. So, if you guys let us know in the future, if you guys want us to do some more episode in terms of medical uh, marijuana and cannabis, we'll bring Nikki back because she's she knows everything really. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll bring every, we'll bring her back and we'll have a good discussion regarding CBD and yeah, and now uh, <laughs> if you guys are looking at us, we're both wearing the same SS station. And we probably both had the same kinesiology uh, coffee mug. Cheers. Cheers. Hello. For, for everybody who's not watching and can't see and doesn't live in the area, SF State is San Francisco State University. Armando and Nikki went to college, got their kinesiology degrees. And I believe your mascot is Gators, correct? Yeah. That's correct. Okay, so San Francisco State University in San Francisco, Bay Area, for those of you who aren't in the area, now you guys know what's going on. Or even in the country, but you know what? <laughs> that's where we're from. That's our alma mater. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Nikki. At the time, we were both a little sleepier at the time. but It was sleepy times, but it was good times. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, I think I enjoyed my time at SF State. I mean... Now looking back on the courses and classes I got to take as a kinesiology major, I definitely feel pretty well prepared for my doctorate program. So that's really cool. I mean, essentially my whole first year of my doctorate program were just repeats of classes I had taken from San Francisco State. I think we had the most underrated kinesiology program. Right. Yeah, I think we were a step ahead of the curve. Totally. And I mean, I think part of that is we also get to partner with UCSF, which is, I mean, obviously one of the top medical schools in the country or the world. So that helps a lot. And I think uh, we we look back on it finally when we were going through it. We weren't that we weren't very fond of it. No. So there was, I think the funny thing with Nikki is actually, I met her, I think I met you before, but you and I were too sleepy to acknowledge each other. 
And then that final semester, I met you on your final semester. I was supposed right. to, I was supposed to graduate with you guys. I know, but biomechanics messed you up, right? You couldn't yeah. get in or something. Yeah, messed me up. They, they, they wouldn't let me in because I didn't do physics, and they had, they made physics a requirement. I was like, fuck. But speaking of biomechanics, so Joe, if you guys listen to the show, Joe loves biomechanics. And one of the things that he always asked me about when I went to school is how was the biomechanics class? And we had very different experiences <laughs> with our biomechanics class. Let's just say that because um, my professor only ever taught this one class and then disappeared. Yes. And so then Armando got a new professor. And you always, and, and so on the run sheet, I actually put a laugh, uh, a crying laughing emoji next to biomechanics for a reason, because I think so. Johnny Yell and I touched on this a little bit earlier, but now that I have Nikki here, she can also tell you the same thing. You always heard horror stories about biomechanics because it's an intriguing class, it's a difficult class, but it's very hard to teach. So the department is still uh, the department has always struggled in terms of hiring a biomechanics teacher mm -hmm. to the point where if you talk to the uh, department chair, they'd actually laugh every time we mention the name biomechanics because- I mean, imagine just teaching a physics class to a bunch of kids that are there because they like sports. <laughs> yes. That's essentially what it was like. It, that's really what it was. So a lot of times I tell Joe, he thinks I'm kidding. You guys think it was kind of like a waste of time? I don't think it was a waste of time. I just don't think the professors were properly prepared. I see. That's uh, what I think, too. Yeah, it's, uh, for us, that when uh, I always tell Joe this, I learned more about biomechanics from him than I actually did from some, some of the teachers over there because that's crazy. There was always a controversy going on. Um, the teacher that I had, she knew biomechanics. The problem was when it came to teaching, she thought that we already knew it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we don't know shit about it. Mm -hmm. And the, the so at. And a lot of it for me personally, I took trigonometry, not calculus. And so a lot of biomechanics applies calculus ideas. And yes. so if you haven't taken calculus, you can be lost. Yeah, or even trigonometry. and then, and. It was not, it was very open-ended when it came to the questions and they taught it as if it's a closed and closed end question. So if you guys are asking me, if you guys are asking yourself, what does that mean open-ended versus closed-end? So let's say truth or truth or false, or there's a, an exact answer. That's not how biomechanics is. Biomechanics has, so one of the questions I'll give you for example, is the laws, the laws of biomechanics follow trigonometry, algebra, and calculus, right? She asked us which one does it, which one, which law does it follow? Calculus, trigonometry, or algebra? A lot of people chose algebra. Truth is, none of the answers were wrong, but she decided to go with trigonometry. Right. A lot of people failed that exam because, because, because of questions like that. So 
we don't have any issues with biomechanics. It was just when it comes to the class itself, it was always messy. It was, it was always messy. Once I got to fact date, which is where I'm doing my doctorate program, um, we didn't have a specific biomechanics class, but we had pathokinesiology, yeah. which essentially we just called biomechanics because that's really what it was. But um, that one was really cool because we got to see it um, in terms of just learning the theories of biomechanics, which is what my undergrad experience was. We actually got to like, see it in terms of like a pitcher throwing a pitch or somebody doing a squat and the running cycle and so on so i feel like i got a better experience with it and got to see how it's actually applied in the real world once i left the sf state class but i still think the sf state class was a nice introductory it was and that's how i felt about mine too because i felt like uh she was doing her best to uh get us to understand the the material but she was also from brazil so she she had she, she had that culture shock and she did yeah, her best to relate to us she did her best to relate to us and bless her heart but it was just um it was just and afterwards after our class she was better but that first semester was so rough it interfered with my chemistry class yeah and, and i don't know um how uh uh other people's experience was but with mine um our classes were huge like we had upwards of 80 to 100 people per class one wow. time I took a class that had almost 600 people in it no joke um so the professor we had he had came from a private university in Canada where his class size was like 12 to 15 students and he was just so overwhelmed he couldn't even figure out how to teach a class of our size so I think that really affected it as well. Yeah, that was that was yeah. I remember hearing about that. I heard a lot of stories about your about your game. Not bad for him. I mean, he tried. He tried and, and, and bless their hearts, man. It's like it, it's yeah. it's a hard topic. It's a hard yeah. topic. And the thing that was crazy for me though was when you told me that you took it with exercise phys and you took it with what was the other one? Qualitative analysis. Um. I think I took it my last semester. So at that point, I was taking 19 units. I think I was taking Gen Chem 1, biomechanics, exercise phys, and then just some other random classes that I can't remember. But those were definitely the big top ones that come to mind. So keep in mind, you guys, all right? So when I say that Nikki is smart as hell, I'm not kidding. She took exercise phase. And biomechanics, which is naturally difficult, but you, they always say, do not, the the advisor, my advisor was Anna Maria, she would say, never take exercise phys. And, this is uh, the head of the kinesiology department. Yeah, she would say, no, do not take it. Do not take them together. But I had no choice. I mean, I needed to graduate. And, and, so, what she, and she aced both of them. I'm like, how the hell did you ace both of these classes and, and the job? I had a, a lot of intrinsic motivation to make it to grad school. There you go. <laughs> but, no, but at that point, I was taking classes at San Francisco State, um, Los Madonos College in Pittsburgh. So I would leave San Francisco State after neuromotor control, take BART back home, take the two and a half hour journey, whatever it was, 
then go to chemistry at Los Medanos in Pittsburgh. That was from 5.30 to 10 p.m. Dang. Mm -mm. Yeah, after you just said that, I want to take a nap now. It was rough. But it, it, I remember you telling me back then, I was like, how the hell did you still get A's and everything? It was rough, but I mean, uh, for me personally, I've always had a very intrinsic motivation for school. I mean, nobody in my family has ever graduated high school, let alone go to college. And so I really wanted to be the one to break that cycle. So I think I just naturally had the internal motivation. And then on top of it, you can't get into PT school with anything less than a 3.6 GPA. So that was also the motivation. Yeah, you went a little higher than that. <laughs> but here's the funny part. So I took, I took X phase a year or so after you left. Yeah, it must have been like the semester or something after. Yeah, the, yeah, it was during the summer. It was my last semester there. And the thing about exercise phys is that they always leave the exams outside. So everybody has access to the exams. But the one thing that- Well, the, after you take them, just so people know. <laughs> after you take them, obviously, yeah. So they more, I don't know if I want to say they recycle them. They, they change the, the wording a lot of times. And people go like, man, you guys just cheated. No. You gotta learn how people. You gotta learn how the professors ask the question too. You, this is it's not just learning the answers, etc. You, you gotta learn how they ask you the question. Sometimes also, my exercise physiology teacher would make us do short answer, so we couldn't just do multiple choice. Exactly. So we had the same professor, Dr. Lee. Mm -hmm. Yep, same professor. So I had to do mine online, but the the lab was in person. Our lab instructor um, seemed to take pride in the fact that nobody got a hundred on those exams. Uh, and on the first class, he's talking about how nobody gets exams. You guys want to see what the exam is about? The exam is right there. But he starts getting salty, and he starts saying, "Somebody, nobody gets a hundred except for someone who did it two years ago." And it still pisses me the fuck off. <laughs> so, so, so he starts talking about it. And I'm like, a couple years ago, two years ago. And I was like, wait, Nikki was in that class. So I sent Nikki a text immediately or a, or a DM. I'm like, Nikki, were you in this class two years ago? Yes. Were you the one that got a hundred on the exam? Yes. <laughs> this guy is still salty about it. That's so funny. It's great. I mean, uh, it was definitely a shock. I wasn't like expecting that to happen. Uh, I was also probably the sickest I've been in like recent years. Wow. No joke on my way. I literally only showed up for the test. I was supposed to have other classes and whatnot. Only showed up for the test the whole way there on BART. I was nauseated, trying to not essentially pass out. Yeah. Got the class, took the two tests, and then went back home. But um, yeah, it, it was a surprise. He was salty about that, Nikki. He was, he literally was like, 
no one, none of you are going to get a hundred on this. I, I can't believe, I can't believe she got it. And then when he said she, I was like, definitely Nikki. I was like, definitely Nikki. He like dropped, I was like, I, and he looked at me, he's like, what? I was like, I know who got the, I know who got the year. He's like, no, you don't. I was like, I know who got the year. I know who got it. I know who got the hundred. I know who got it. And it's funny that you mentioned being sitting and watching the exam because that's how I was for another professor that we that we had. Let's call him manage or the condiment. Yeah. And <laughs> now I'm grateful because you guys see we're on a podcast and I edit these videos and I edit the audio and I learned how to film correctly through him. So like I I gave him thanks when the, when I finished the class, but we had a rough history. And he had a history of being a little cocky. Do you, do you have any good stories about him? I don't have good stories about him, but I have stories about him. <laughs> Let's clarify that. Um, I don't know. I had him my very first semester at San Francisco State. Uh, from the very beginning, the first thing he said was, raise your hand if you want to be a physical therapist. You know, probably nine out of the 30 of us raised our hand. He goes, by the end of this semester, none of you will be raising your hand. He had made it his mission to make sure none of us wanted to be physical therapists anymore. So Do I don't know, know what. Do you know why? I don't. Well, the way he would word it is, it's just not worth it. You're going to be a quarter million dollars in debt and you're never going to get accepted anyways. And you're never going to get a job and blah, blah, blah. So to me, that just made me feel like he tried to get into PT school and never got accepted. And now he's bitter. Yeah, he's he's pretty bitter. But um, yeah, essentially he just made it his goal to like discourage people. And so from the beginning, me and him did not get along. Every time he had a negative point against being a physical therapist, I would bring up a positive point to fight that. And he didn't enjoy that. At one point we had to make a mock resume and so I made my mock resume and I get my grade back and he'd given me a D and I was like what so I went to go talk to him and ask him where it was coming from how I could improve and he was like well the stuff on your actual uh resume is fine but um I asked for single spacing and this is 1.5 spacing I was like that's it and he was like well, you really need to be able to follow format when you join the professional world. And so me and him went back and forth a little bit over it. And I was like, so the content of my work is okay. It's just this half spacing that is the issue. And he was like, I don't even know why you're arguing this with me. It's only one grade. Oh, I hate it when you said that. That's and cool. just from there, we just didn't get along. Yeah, he, he was... I'm grateful for the experience um, that we, in the end, later on. But <clears throat> so one of my other friends, she didn't get along with him either. So my last semester, I was, I had him for senior research. And I was able to pull an A out of him. And I felt I was carrying you and I was carrying, and I was carrying my other, my other friend with, with, with me when I did it. Because <laughs> it was just like the ultimate, like, I was like, it was like the ultimate F you at the end. Right. Because um, when I took motor development, I had a I had a flu myself. Joe remembers this. I was actually really, I went to work the day before. 
and Joe and Joe saw me. I was dying. You were exhausted, like sleep deprived, and like super super sick. He's like, <laughs> yeah. Joe is just like, yeah. Joe is like, uh, I was like, he's like, man, you look horrible. He's like, you should put your. He, he's like, you should lower. He goes like, you should lower your because uh, your, <laughs> your eyes look like crap. <laughs> so the next day I go in and uh, the exam, I'm just ready to take it. I'm just ready for it to be over. And he's taking forever talking. He's bragging about something that he did. I don't know what it was. And then he finishes up with, aren't I a great teacher? He's saying that right in front of me. And I'm like, no, you suck. Give <laughs> us the damn exam. And I had a 79.8% in his class. I think it was like a 555 out of 623, something like that. Usually when that happens, that point, it's like 0.6 and above, you round it up, right? He refused to round it up. I was like, why yeah. didn't you round it up? I, I knew I, partially because he, he was butter because I said he sucked. But the other one was... Uh, but he was also just like that. He said the same thing to me. He's like, not everyone's gonna get the grade they want. Yeah. The worst part is, is you would leave his office more confused than when you walked in. Yeah. You would. He would ask. You would ask him a question, and he would not have any idea how to do it. So he wanted us to do a video project, right? And he wanted voiceovers. So I go over. He's like, hey, how do you do the? How do you do the the voiceovers? I don't know, but you're gonna have to do it. <laughs> Wait, so you don't know how to do it? He's like, that's not much help. That's not much help. He's like, yeah, but you gotta do it. Mm -hmm. and, Same thing for the top makeup. And or the the other one was like when he would forget certain directions, he'd tell you when you turn it in or when everything was already turned in. So he kept on waffling on whether or not we we're gonna have a script. So nobody did a script. He only mentioned it once. He's like, no, I'm going to do the script. Go to the library, turn it in. I hope everybody has a script ready because it's important. Nobody has it. So everybody lost 10 points on that one. Yeah, he, I mean, one of my last semesters, it was either my second to last or my last semester, I was taking microbiology, which obviously isn't in the kinesiology department. So different professors, different everything. But there was some freshman kinesiology majors taking that class. And they had heard that I was, I think it was my last semester. And so they heard I was graduating and were just like asking me some questions about the professors and yada, yada. And I was mentioning um, that story of my first semester, first day experience with mayonnaise. And the microbiology professor had heard me talking to the other ones. And she like came up to me and super concerned super nice was like do you want me to like go talk to your department chair because that's not appropriate for a professor to be saying to students and she like she was the epitome of what a professor should be yeah and it was nice to see that in contrast to the condiment yes he yeah he had his struggles he and he would brag about his accomplishments um which i mean like that's awesome he got his PhD but to then be shitting on other post-bac degrees like a physical therapy degree like when your PhD was studying powerpoints I mean how fair is that 
Yeah, that's not fair at all. He was, and when you look at the reason why he got a PhD, like you're not gonna, you can't help but laugh. Like he got a PhD because what was his PhD on? If uh, you get motion sickness from, from if we want to get scientifical, <laughs> it yeah. was the effect of PowerPoint motion on the vestibular system. Basically, he was saying if, if power, if you get motion sickness from PowerPoint. Yep. That's how he got his PhD. It's funny that microbiology professor, like me and her are still really good friends on Instagram now. Like it's nice to actually had made some connections and same with like Professor uh, Stewart. <laughs> I was like, can I say her name? Yeah, uh, I don't. She's married now, so I think she changed her name. But. Okay, well, Professor Stewart, she was honestly the hands down one of the best professors I ever had. And then I got a TA for her, which was even more great. And then she helped me with my letters of recommendation for grad school. So I feel like even though there were a few professors that made it um, unnecessarily hard, there were more that uh, outweighed good that outweighed the bad yeah cassandra was one of my uh cassandra stewart she's one of she was one of my my mentors too mm-hmm. at class so joe you asked me you asked me what class i i use the most yeah and topical kinesis my for cassandra stewart that the one, that's the one that i use the most because she taught that's where i really learned how like the body works i learned about gate there i learned about uh Torque, everything. I, I torque, everything. Like you learn different like, types of muscle contractions, like eccentric, concentric, isometric. You learned it all, man. It was it was incredible. It was. Uh, and she was so good at teaching it too. Yeah, she was great at teaching it. Like she was, she would, she in the first day she would come off as like intimidating, but she was one of the chillest teachers you knew. Oh yeah, and she really wanted you to like actually learn it. So. For example, after the exams, um, let's say, you know how sometimes there's those multiple choice questions where it's like A, B, or A and B is like the last option. Yeah. If you circled A, she would give you like a half point if the question was A and B, you know, like she really, she wanted you to actually learn something as opposed to just make a grade. Yeah, because if you explained it to her also why you chose it and you gave her a good reason, she would change her. She would change. She would give you those points. Right, right. She would that's, also, really, that's how um, physical therapy works. I mean, like, uh, as long as you can justify what you're doing, it makes sense. It's not like there's one right way to do everything. Absolutely not. And, and that was one of the, and she was also really cool because she would, she loved doing the festival concerts. <laughs> so, She'd be like, oh, I'm not going to be here, you guys. And we're like, she's going to Coachella. <laughs> yeah, I remember it's a little different, but when I was TAing for her, because she was getting her PhD in education, things called a doctorate of education. Yeah. Um, she was doing it online through a school back east, and she had to go defend her thesis. And so she asked me and the other TA to take over the lab for like a week and a half. And I remember feeling so honored that she asked us that. Yeah, I was she. That was a great class. It was probably, I would say that one and Doctor, the class that you and I were in, therapeutic exercise. Doctor, yeah, 
that was another one where I learned a lot too. We're so lucky to have gotten therapeutic exercise in undergrad. Almost yes. everybody I talk to in my cohort right now. So there's 32 of us and almost none of them had exposure to manual muscle tests, goniometry, any of the stuff that we've gone over. Oh, wow. So yeah. it was a lot of stuff that, so yeah, that would, Dr. Moon was, Dr. Moon loved me. So I was okay with him and he gave me a good hug at uh, graduation. Yeah, he, he goes, I didn't get a chance to, t- to take a picture with him at graduation. And also both of us were, I don't know if you heard Nikki, but the year after, the, the year that we that I graduated, we were the most late class of all time. <laughs> we actually bombarded a bar before the ceremony um, started, including Dr. Moon, Dr. Hughes, and Dr. Boyd, I think, was there too. That's great. I love that. That's too bad y'all couldn't celebrate together. Yeah, man, I was... I know. To be honest, I don't think any of my actual friends from San Francisco State were in my graduating class. Oh, man. They were either, like, the semester before me, the semester after me, like, sucked. It's... I was, like, I was watching you. I was, like, I'm so happy for you and my other friend. I was, like, I'm so happy. I'm watching you guys on Instagram live. I'm, like, (laughs) be there with you guys. But then... But it was okay, man. The setback is, uh, the comeback is always great. The setback and the year afterwards, we we, we uh, closed that thing down. I know, you guys were the last class for COVID. Yeah, and also, but the truth is, twenty. I, I joke with my friends all the time that they weren't going to follow us up because they changed the rules. They're like, we're going we're gonna to do a, we're going to a ceremony early in the day because last year you guys were too crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, I think, so you remember those steps that when you have to walk up the stairs? Yeah. When you have to walk up on the stage? Mm-hmm. So everybody was either passing a pan around because our uh, president was actually really, was actually really um, smart about it. He's, he said, let's have a smoke machine in the entry so everybody could pass a pen. Uh, how funny. So they're passing a pen or everybody, everybody had shots before the show starts. So nobody knew that there were steps behind, there's steps behind. And all you see on the way to the stage is everybody falling over, losing their cap, losing their gown, not their gowns, but their sashes. Right. So you're seeing all of this fly all over the place. And then everybody's like picking up by the time we get to the stage. How funny. So that was, that was fun to see. And, and then, um, but I wasn't able to see Dr. Moon that night. And then when he saw me, when I came back for uh, my last class, he gave me a huge hug. He's like, congratulations, what are you doing here? <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, just one more class, that's it. <laughs> but it, it was, uh, when I said state, man, that, that, that department was incredible. Yeah, I agree. That department <laughs> was great. I, I made great friends out of you. I got Nikki right here. And now look at that. Nikki is part of the Adapt Session family. I know. I'm so honored to be here, guys. And this will be the last time we have you. So thank you for jumping on, Nikki. Yeah, it was fun. And it wouldn't be the adapt session with the guy who leaves the party early to end the show. Yep, I got to go, guys. I got shit to do. Let's get out of here. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Season two, you guys. We're glad to be back. And um, have a great day. And Happy New Year. Oh, oh, that's right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And uh, also, we told you we'd get back to the science. We got away from the political stuff for the most part. For hey, now. it's about lifestyle, though. 
got to do what's going on. Definitely. So maybe later on we'll get Nikki's opinion on this stuff because she's actually really smart. Like I said, she's really smart. She knows everything. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that, that you came on, Nikki, because like Armando's saying, we did want to go back to, you know, health, fitness, get back mm -hmm. to, into the science of things, help educate our people. Um, and what better way than to have somebody who's, who's practicing and, and, you know, in her, in her doctorate program to become a physical therapist to come on here and shed some light on some things. And for those who don't know, and for those who don't know, the clients that are listening to this that I've stretched she's she's been one of the people that's actually helped you get relief <laughs> i've actually gone to nikki in some, in some of the cases so i'm always here to help so we got so um where can they follow you on socials yes so my main social would just be instagram at spt.nikkilachey um nikki lachey is n-i-c-c-i-l-a-s-h-a-y no k okay so you guys can follow Joe at jsaucy25 and at fitness.mindsetca. And mine is, I believe, Armando underscore J415. It's one of those things. <laughs> it's so, on a DAP page. <laughs> follow, follow a DAP session, a DAP.session on Instagram. <laughs> follow us on Facebook. We'll see you guys soon. Happy Bye, Thank you.